Are you ready to take your marketing and advertising game to the next level? Join us at Advertising Week Europe at Picture House Central in London this 16th to 18th of May. Gain unparalleled insights and inspiration from the industry's top minds and network with the biggest brands and agencies in a city known for creativity and innovation. With top industry leaders from brands like Primark, Arla Foods, Uber, and Heineken. Inspiring speakers including talent supremo Simon Cowell and fashion designer Harris Reed, as well as cutting-edge insights, this is your chance to stay ahead of the curve. From AI to brand insights to the latest in tech and everything in between, Advertising Week Europe has got you covered. Join us at Advertising Week Europe and discover why it's a must-attend event for anyone in the marketing and advertising industry at any level. Register now at advertisingweek.com slash Europe and use promo code AW25 for 25% off of your passes. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a old and dear, dear friend. He's one of my favorite, favorite people. We just got a chance to reunite in Los Angeles during our an extreme event and spend some good time together. Uh, with us today is the great Peter Shuby, founder and president at Ladder and Light. And uh, Peter, just a joy to get a chance to talk to you. Matt, um, you took the words right out of my mouth. You are one of my favorite people. Lordy, lordy. All right. Listen, this is going to get very sappy very quickly. So, <laughs> you so, know, it's a, it's a little sap now and then never hurt anybody. Exactly. Exactly. So, Peter, you had a great academic background. I want to just sort of go through some of your journey, Wesleyan and then a law degree at NYU. End up about seven years after you graduate from law school, where we met during your tenure as president of the Jim Henson Company. What I don't know is what happened before that. So I'd love to sort of get, fill in those, that blank spot between law school and uh, that magical run you had at Henson. So give or take a six or seven year period. Well, it's actually, it's actually funny because I tell people that starting with nursery school where I attended the 92nd Street Y in New York. I couldn't get into any of the schools if I applied today that I ended up attending. I couldn't get into collegiate where I went to high school in New York City. I couldn't get into Wesleyan. I couldn't get into NYU. I couldn't get into any and I couldn't get into nursery school because my parents didn't have the three million dollars it takes to get a spot in the red room at the 92nd Street Y. Um, but I left, uh, I graduated law school, and I started practicing law in New York at what was then a boutique real estate firm by the name of Parker Chapin. And I was doing real estate law, practicing mostly in the, on behalf of the private banking group at Citibank. And they would lend money to anybody for, you know, it, it was private bank, right? It, it's the kind of thing that frankly has gotten some of these regional banks of late in trouble, but it was a different time in a different place. So they, we, we had a handful of young lawyers running around lending money to rich clients of the private banking division of Citibank. I had a friend who was the junior lawyer at the Henson offices in New York. That was the company's only office in this country that had a, 
a longstanding office in London that Jim had set up when he went over to do the Muppet Show in 1977. And he kept that office intact through the production of The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, which were both shot in London. Um, but the headquarters for the company was in New York. And um, it was in a double-wide townhouse on East 69th Street in Manhattan. Were you, have you, were you ever there? Did you come visit? I did not see the townhouse, no. No. The townhouse, it's right across the street from Hunter College. It's on East 69th Street. It was subsequently sold to Edgar Bronfman, who subsequently sold it to James Murdoch. So there's a long line of uh, legacy uh, billionaires <laughs> um, who now occupy it as their home. But I, I, I went to visit my friend who was the, as I say, the junior lawyer at the Henson Company. And I walked into this building and I thought to myself, I have to work here. I have to work here. Um, and shortly thereafter, my friend left Henson to go join his dad's law firm in New York. So there was an opening for a junior lawyer. And um, <laughs> I was I was I clued in a couple of my junior law associates at the law firm that I was applying for this job. And Henson was in some transition at the time. So it took an inordinate amount of time for them to make a decision. And every day, a colleague of mine at the law firm would come in and ask me, have you heard anything yet? And I'd say, no, not yet. And every day he'd say the same thing. You know what my dad always says, they're not waiting all this time to tell you yes. <laughs> that character, that character went on, left the law firm, went on to probably be individual one causing the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> by by betting the firm's own money on in their real estate practice when the subprime mortgage collapse happened so you know he he was he was a, he was a wild player uh, in the firm and afterwards wow great story so but eventually it sounds like you got the job right i got the job i was the baby lawyer and next Thing I knew Jim wanted to sell his company to the Walt Disney Company. Jim was a little tired of, of being occupied with other than creative endeavors. Um, he was a huge fan of Michael Eisner personally, and the quality at which the Walt Disney Company executed its creative enterprise. And he was a huge fan of the theme parks. And he thought, if I can sell the Muppets to Disney, I can be free to make everything I knew I want to make. So he and Michael had a handshake agreement. The two companies went about their business as if they had already combined. It was, as you may recall, the heyday of Disney's hyper-aggressive business practices. So they left no stone unturned. Um, and in the middle of it, Jim died suddenly and changed the, um, changed the future for both companies uh, if the deal were to go through. Because Michael was counting very much on Jim being the next Walt Disney, frankly, for his entire company. And the family, well, the company without Jim Henson, nobody knew what that meant. So we took a pause. Um, the tax considerations got in the way, fear got in the way, 
sadness, <laughs> sadness got in the way. And Disney ended up walking away from the deal. The company, the Henson Company, had virtually fully integrated its operations into the Walt Disney Company, such that the day that Disney officially walked away was the day of the Henson Company Christmas party in New York. And the, I think he was probably president of the company by then, who has since gone on to great things as, among other things, the U.S. ambassador to France. He and I snuck out of the party and charted on a calendar the day, 90 days hence, when the company was going to run out of money because we had shut down all our businesses in anticipation of handing Disney over clean a clean slate of intellectual property with no licenses attached, no television development in, in place. Um, and then this is all, you know, I have, I'll show you one day the big volume of court papers I have. Then Disney insisted that they were going to go through and open up the 3D movie, the Muppet 3D movie that Jim had been working on when he died. And we said, well, you have to pay us for that. And they said, no, we don't. We have permission from Jim Henson to open it. And we're not going to pay you. We're going to open it anyway. And so we ended up having to sue them. Um, and the minute we sued them, this is sort of an interesting little um, uh, tidbit. The minute we sued them, we forced them into a public forum, relying on an argument that a dead creator had given somebody a free license to use his intellectual property. And that was obviously a position that they couldn't take in a public forum because of what it would, it, what it would have exposed them to with a line of people claiming Walt Disney, before he died, told me I could use Mickey Mouse as much as I wanted. Walt Disney, before he died, told me Donald Duck, actually, he gave it to me. So we settled that for an amount of money that righted the company financially. And <clears throat> the long and short of it is the Jim Henson Company has now been uh, actively flourishing for longer without Jim Henson than it did with him. Amazing story. Let's spend a, a little bit of time talking about Jim, who died 50 some odd years old. Uh, 53. 53. And talk about what a giant he was. Uh, completely unique, extraordinarily special body of work, which still resonates today as much as ever. And you go back and you watch those early Muppet shows. We're all very big fans of them in our house. And they're still funny today. It, 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 you know what? He was, it, it was the rare combination of a genius who thrived on collaboration. He was, you know, he was, he, it was never his way or the highway. It was always, what do we think about this? How should we do this? Which do you think is better? He was collaborative uh, first and foremost. And I think that's frankly part of where the magic came from because he let these remarkably talented people that he gathered around him, Frank Oz, the genius Frank Oz, Yoda, a remarkable film director, Cookie Monster, Miss Piggy, uh, Grover. He let Frank have an equal seat at the table. And the result was one plus one equal to 11, not even three. So he was, you know, and, and, and he was, um, as so often happens in, 
in creator-driven companies, there be there was an ethos around the place that uh, people thought it was their job to protect Jim from himself. And of course, <clears throat> he did his best work when he was allowed to be himself. So there was, you know, it, it, it was just, it was a fascinating, fabulous place to work. You mentioned it earlier. Let's just go back. London plays an outsized role in the history of the company. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, th th another funny story. Um, Jim had pitched the Muppet Show as a pilot to ABC, and they passed. And then Lord Lou Grade, who was a figure larger than life in the UK uh, television scene, he ran a company called ITTV. He was one of the early impresarios of the London television scene, said um, he was interested. He heard about it and he was interested. So Jim flew over to meet with him with strict instructions from the company's lawyer, whatever you do, don't sign anything. And of course, Jim came back with a literally a cocktail napkin <laughs> with a deal sketched out on a cocktail napkin signed by Jim Henson and Lou Grade. But they but one of the conditions was it needed to be shot in London. Which suited Jim perfectly well. There's a wonderful creative community there of uh, writers and craftsmen, particularly. So he staffed a, a puppet shop with people both from London and brought people over from New York. And then every week had to fly a guest star over and flew them over, put them up at the Athenaeum on Piccadilly. And one after another, they shot 22 episodes a year. And, and by the end, um, Jim had grown a little creatively uh, fulfilled with the Muppet show and he shut it down at the height of its popularity just shut it down and said, I want to do something different and went off to work on the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and other things that were different genre from, from the Muppet show. But London, he had a, he, you know, the family still um, lives in this wonderful home that he had in Hampstead. The office was right down the street. Um, and it was a, it was a magical time and a magical place. And, you know, in that, in that, uh, Duncan Kenworthy, who went on to produce Four Weddings and a Funeral and Love Actually and all of Richard Curtis's big successes, was the producer inside the company. Um, the talent pool that Jim attracted and then released um, populated the entire creative community in London. Amazing story. Remarkable. So, remarkable. Remarkable. Incredible. So you, to me, are a quintessential New Yorker. But at some point, pack up the Samsonite luggage and go to Los Angeles. Talk about that evolution for you. If you had asked me if two years before I moved, would I ever possibly conceive of moving to Los Angeles? I would have told you you're crazy. I am, as you say, you know, I can still in my mind's eye conjure up virtually every street corner in Manhattan and Two friends of mine just sent me yesterday uh, a link to, I guess it was New York Eater that said that, thank goodness, Papaya King has found a new home across the street on Third Avenue because the old home on 86th Street, where I was literally weaned because I grew up around the corner, 
um, but Papaya King is now happily ensconced in a sliver of what used to be Models on 86th and 87th and 3rd. But I will tell you, um, so I, had you asked me at the time, there's no way I would have thought I would end up living in Los Angeles. I will tell you that I love living in Los Angeles. We've been here 33, 34 years. Um, it's a wonderfully easy place to raise a family, especially boys. Um, back then, I will admit that there was an anti-intellectualism to life here. Um, that since has evaporated because the city is a cultural beacon. The arts scene here is on fire. The food scene here is on fire. It is, it is a great, great global city, but it needed to, it needed to grow into that stature. Um, and so, you know, you come from New York and everybody knows everything and everybody knows the best of everything. And so it takes a little adjusting when you move out here. But this is a really I'm certain New York friends of mine will tell you that my edges have been dulled by living in 72 and sunny for 35 years. Um, and I will also tell you that I get back to New York a lot and it strikes me as harder to, you know, the quotidian aspects of life in New York are just more taxing than those aspects are anywhere else, particularly in Los Angeles. Um, but, but we, we, you know, I feel like I have two hometowns. How does that sound? Uh, that sounds good. And, and I think, listen, New York takes a lot of work. You know, there's a lot of strat strategy in your every movement here. In L.A., you're going from parking in front in one place to parking in front in another. Uh, and uh, I do think the legend of L.A. traffic is true. I, I, as a New Yorker, I respect it. That when I saw you, uh, I had to do some driving afterwards and it took me a couple hours to get out of L.A. I was impressed by that. And all you can, <laughs> all you can do is laugh. But uh, New York, or oppressed. well, both, but uh, New York just, we're not smarter here, but you have to make more decisions. You know, yeah. if, you, no, if you're going you somewhere, there's more know, that needs navigating front of the train, back of the train, middle of the train, you know, where do you want to get in? Where do you want to get out? It's just more decisions. Uh, but uh, I, I've grown to really love uh, LA and I'm not surprised as a, as a dyed in the wool New Yorker that you do too. But you know what? I'll tell you a funny story. I'll tell you a funny story, though, on, on just the difference. When, when, um, whenever we go out to a restaurant, my friends, my wife, let's look for a parking spot. Let's not valet. I am, I am so appreciative of valet parking because as a young boy, we would come home from our, our beach house in Fire Island every Sunday night. And it was my job with my father to, after we've dropped everybody off, to drive around the neighborhood looking for a parking spot that was good until Tuesday because of alternate side of the street parking. It wasn't, couldn't just be any spot. It had to be good till Tuesday. And as a result, I, I, there is no amount of money a valet parker can charge that I won't pay. Right. Right. Just to avoid the uh, horror of alternate. Just to side. avoid, just yeah. to avoid the, the combat, the combat flashbacks. Yeah, um, you know, traipsing around the Upper East Side looking for, with everybody else looking for a parking spot that is good till Tuesday. And you get a good spot. It could be a nuclear holocaust. You're not moving that <laughs> you're not, car. You're not 
<laughs> that's exactly right. But yeah. but you know that's a part of life in New York that's harder, right? Yeah. We moved yeah. apartments in the city uh, two weeks ago. We have a small little apartment, and we moved two floors down. And to get moving boxes in Manhattan is a chore. Not to mention packing them to actually get the boxes. You're walking on the street with eight boxes under each. It's just it's a mess. Yeah. So it's harder, but it's, the payoff is sublime. So there you go. It is indeed. So y- y- you end up in one of the great campuses working on the Henson lot where we met uh, way back when in your office, I think was Jim's office uh, at a certain point. No, Can you, no, Charlie, Jim, Charlie, no Charlie, excuse Jim, me. It was Charlie Chaplin. Char- Charlie Chaplin. Right, right. Charlie I'm, 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 I'm mixing up two it icons. It was also... Tell us the story because it it's such a magical her- place. All right. It, um, it is the old Chaplin Studios, which begat Hologram Records. Which it just changed hands several, several times. And you said Herb, and that's Herb, Herb when, Albert. Herb Albert and Jerry Miles, right. A- right. A&M. Right. In, in fact, I must have shown you in the back of the lot, there are three concrete chambers of different dimensions that Herb Albert used to take his horn section in and record in them to get a different reverb and a different echo sound based on which which of the three sized uh, concrete bunkers they they were in at the time. Next time you go, ask Nicole to to take you back there. It's fabulous. I will. But but the company the company was looking for a place to move, and this uh, polygram had just been sold to Universal Music, which was based over <clears throat> on the Universal lot. So this property became available. Um, it is a half of a city block in the heart of Hollywood. Um, it's still houses what was A&M Recording Studio, which where some of the most seminal rock and roll albums of all time were recorded. I don't know. Uh, Carol King's Tapestry was recorded there. The Carpenters recorded all their albums there. Um, the Rolling Stones. Have Have you seen the film 20 Feet from Stardom? Yeah, of course. Darlene Love. The background yeah, of singers. yeah, of course. Right, right. So the the woman who is interviewed as the background singer who does who gets called out in the middle of the night in her curlers and her fur coat or to go g- give me give me shelter murder yeah give me shelter yeah was, was recorded at henson we are the world was recorded and the video was shot at that recording studio um so it and if you ask several people there are still ghosts hanging around um, so it is a legendary jewel of a historical gem. How's that for a fantastic? Phrase? And and the ghost haunted piece really mostly refers to the Chaplin soundstage. Uh, yeah, the Chaplin soundstage, which which in its original incarnation was open air, because that's how they lit uh, his movies with the sun, not with lights. So they had, they had to put a roof on it. Now there's a whole solar grid on top of the roof that was built on top of the open air soundstage. You couldn't film. It's a point worth making sure we get across because there wasn't good enough lighting back then. Light, right, right. Now I'll tell you a funny story. I woke up one morning, probably a half dozen years ago, maybe more, and I'm searching through Twitter or whatever. 
and I read about um, how Justin Bieber uh, was going to a recording studio and there was a prom party in the soundstage on the lot and he, he waded into the crowd of kids and hysteria ensued. And I said, oh, that's got to be our soundstage. And it was. And the parents were outraged that security was so lax that he created a near riot inside the soundstage. The kids had the most memorable prom night in the history of prom nights because Justin Bieber crashed their prom and danced with them. You know, that's his those are his people. He couldn't resist. It's, it, you know, the 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 stories, the stories of that lot um, go on and on and on. And they are both charming and historical and and remarkable it's a wonderful spot and it remains a vibrant place today it was mary clayton was the voice who sang gimme shelter i j- just popped into my head mary clayton great voice i love i love that movie 20 feet from uh, start and we had we had uh, darlene love who's still my favorite singer uh, on the show a couple years ago still love her uh i used to watch letterman's christmas show religiously yeah, yeah. for her oh, performance yeah. absolutely christmas baby please come home irony the whole evolution of the company ends up winding back to disney years later right well the, the as as i said the sale to disney fell through the family then um built the company up to a, a to an to such an impressive extent that they were able to sell it to a european company for a reported 800 million dollars um, that company that acquired it quickly made several other purchases that prompted them to be overextended. Something in moat didn't weren't they a big player at big player in motorsports? There was some crazy stuff they did. They bought they bought fifty percent of EN, of uh, Formula One. Right. And and everybody knows that when you make a deal with Bernie Ecclestone, you come in in second place. Everybody knows that. And they made a deal with Bernie Ecclestone, and they came in in second place. Um, and so they, it overextended the, their business and they put the company up for sale and, you know, everybody and their brother kicked the tires and the family decided, you know what, we want to, um, we want to secure our father, our father's legacy. So they bought it back from the company to whom they had sold it for pennies on the dollar. Um, and then that's when I became president of the company. And we built it up again to a significant, sizable operation. We, we, you know, restarted an international distribution division. We restarted our consumer products division. We, we were one of the first funded YouTube channels when YouTube first put that $100 million out to a bunch of different startups to program original content for YouTube. We partnered with uh, the Nerdist, who you probably know, Chris. Sure, yeah, Chris Hardwick. Chris, Chris Hardwick. Yeah, we partnered with him on a channel. So, so you know, another, another, like I said, the, the, the Henson Company has been thriving for as uh, long without Jim Henson as it thrived with him. And Brian and Lisa, two great leaders, his kids. Absolutely, absolutely. Lisa Henson. Just won an Academy Award for Pinocchio. She was a producer on the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio animated film. 
amazing, amazing stuff. You have a great run there uh, and then you leave and you get an opportunity and work with another big player in the animation space for a couple of years. Uh, can we talk about that journey? You work for a real pow powerhouse guy. Chris was a unique, unique guy. Let's talk about that chapter. I had come to the conclusion that I would be, um, I'd be disappointed if my career ended where it had began, essentially. I wanted there to be another chapter. So I left Henson and literally on the, <laughs> the day that my last day, I got a phone call because Illumination was looking for a chief operating officer. And I thought to myself, wow, everything I've done at Henson as a small, modestly capitalized, privately held company, I can, you know, deploy on steroids in at, at, at Illumination. And we did. We released Despicable Me 3 and it did a billion dollars at box office. It's Chris Melodondry is the most successful independent or individual animation producer on the planet. Wait, wait till you see what the Super Mario movie does this weekend. Um, but, but, but his, his company is, uh, while its output is gigantic and its footprint is gigantic, the operations of the company are actually smaller than, than the, than the Henson company. The Henson company had offices around the world, had significant tax and and real estate and um you know other components to it um illumination is essentially chris and his genius is it leads it and and is the secret sauce there but after a year and a half it was just you know there's not enough of a job uh for me here and so i left there and decided for the first time in my career that I was going to work for myself. Um, I had been a company guy, a paycheck guy my whole life. Um, and I thought, well, let's try something different. So I, I, I started, I formed a little company with the expectation and intent that I was going to advise early and mid-stage companies on how to articulate and then implement a set of policies that reflect and honor their the values that they want their company to um, both you know to 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 observe and to reflect and before I could get traction in that area people from my prior life reached out to me um, because it was at the very beginning of the peak TV explosion and uh, and uh, you know, Companies that have intellectual property in media other than film and television, who wanted to expand their businesses into film and television, started calling me to say, can you help? Many of them were family, privately held family companies, um, something I had a significant experience with. Um, and so I've been doing that on behalf of um, brands and companies that we all know um and but whose business is is not in the first instance rooted in film and television 
and I'm uh, I'm having the, an extraordinarily um, enjoyable experience working working. You know the motto the motto I dedicated myself to was only work I want to do with only people I want to do it. And I've been very fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah, you've you've earned that opportunity. Talk about that journey, though. You mentioned it sort of tongue in cheek, but th- that's a big deal as a senior guy who's worked for big, big companies for his entire career, whether it was a law firm or or in the, you know, for the Henson Company, then for a cup of coffee at Illumination. But there's a big difference between the stomach of an entrepreneur and the stomach of someone who every two weeks is getting a paycheck. Talk about that journey. Sounds like it sounds like it's gone really well, but it's a very different mindset. It's it's a totally different mindset, and no one, you know, it, it requires you to be much more outward facing and aggressive in your, your uh, in your efforts to to attract business. You know, sometimes it's incoming, but most of the time, it's the result of of hustling. Um, and thankfully, I had. I'm old enough to have been at it long enough that I have relationships with people at, at, you know, at the top and in the, the senior ranges of companies um, that, that value my input and my counsel. And um, it's been very, you know, it's been, a, it's been a great ne- next act for me, to be honest, but it, but it's, it's not without trepidation, certainly. Yeah. You know, you know, nothing beats the security and reliability of a paycheck every two weeks. Yeah. But as you said, the opportunity to work with people who you want to work with on projects that you enjoy, you've earned that opportunity. Um, what I said on the top end, and I guess we said it about each other, um, you're really one of my favorites. And I think you're such a classy, smart guy. You got such a great wit. I love it when we both sort of out of nowhere We'll send each other something that's completely non sequitur. <laughs> non sequitur. Uh, we must, we must prioritize and get to a baseball game together this season because uh, we both I, love baseball. I can't wait. I can't wait. And, I can't wait. Uh, Have you noticed how quick the games are? Yeah, it's great. I think the changes they, are good. Thirty-five they got, minutes. They've they knocked got, thirty-five minutes off of a game. And yeah. I was just thinking about this without sacrificing ad time on the broadcast because it's in game where the ch- changes come it's not there so they still have as much ad because i was wondering how's this going to affect the broadcast rights because they don't have as much ad space to <clears throat> to sell but it's but the the commercial spots are all the same it's just the in-game action has been sped up it's fabulous i love it as a purist i don't love starting the season with interleague games the yankees to me it was odd that they're playing the giants on opening day but I love that they, they got weird, rid of right? they, they got rid of the shift, which I couldn't stand. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. I think well, the how many times how many times you're watching your team hit a rocket to right field only to see the second baseman field it twenty yards deep into the outfield and throw the guy out? It's awful. Yeah, no, uh, great. Well, Peter, thanks so much for doing this. A joy. It was great to see you and our mutual friend, the uh, brilliant Nicole Goldman, still at the Henson Company, uh, doing a wonderful job. And uh, I can't wait to see you again, pal. Anytime, either here or there. 